Well, this is week two of uh, three weeks in which we are going to spend some time, uh, we said we spent some time in Philippians, and again, our readings are appointed, and so we find ourself, ourselves in chapter three, and the Apostle Paul, he begins chapter three by saying this, he said, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That's how he's beginning to close this letter. It's a long close, which sometimes preachers do. I've sometimes done. But this is how he begins. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And he continues in verse 1 of chapter 3 to say, To write you the same things is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So in other words, this call to rejoice is apparently that important. I've said this to you before. I'm going to say it again, and it's not a problem because it's safe for you. Rejoice. Admittedly, I I think very few of us, though when things aren't going so well, we want to be told to be cheerful, to put a smile on our faces and to focus on the good. The absolute last person that I want to see walk through my door when I am bummed out is Mr. Rogers singing something like, it's the style to wear a smile. You remember that? Remember that song? God bless him. What an amazing man. But you know, they have all those exuberant piano runs behind all of the songs that they're singing. They're all in major keys when I'm wanting some minor keys when I'm bummed out. But here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I am glad when someone cheers me up. I just don't want to know that that's what they're trying to do. <laughs> Maybe you feel that way too. But before uh, Mr. Rogers was crooning his songs, and and even before neurologists discovered that physically smiling for no reason can actually improve your mood, and it can, Paul understood something. He understood, I think, that there is a tug of war going on in which we have some real agency. We make some choices. We have a choice to tap into hope when things are really hard. It's certainly about more than smiling, but probably not less. Rejoice in the Lord. Contend for joy. Pull back in this tug of war against the weight of your legitimate concerns and the real world challenges that you're facing. Remember, he's saying, and rehearse what the Lord Jesus has given you and what he's done for you and what's true now and that you know is true. And I think lest we forget, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's not in the cheap seat saying, hey, cheer up. Rejoice. He's in prison. His future is uncertain. His Christianity, it does not seem to be working out for his good at the time, by at least some measure. He has lost his former life's work. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his family. He's lost his community and his former sense of identity by putting his faith in Jesus. Just before our reading today, he basically says, I had it all. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says he had plenty of reasons to ground his confidence in this high birth and in his hard work. But he's actively doing what? He's embracing a new present and he's embracing a new future. Now that Israel's Messiah has been revealed far differently than he had imagined, conceived of, or been taught about, 
This reality has become, this new reality has become the ground of a new life, a new zealous calling with a new understanding of what righteousness means, how it's attained, or in fact, how it's received. He says all this, and yet he's also not glossing over the cost, the cost of letting go of the old version of reality to which he had so zealously clung and which seemed to be serving him well. There are real experiential losses, and he is embodying them proclaiming them and he clearly knows how difficult it can be to make this move from the old thing the way of thinking and understanding and operating to a new one calls to mind some astronomy news that i heard this week ever since uh, nasa launched uh, the web space telescope on christmas day of 2021 i have been paying attention not super close attention, but following a little bit, keeping up with their findings, keeping up with their photos. Uh, the Webb Telescope was launched proclaiming uh, that we'll now be able to look so deep into space that we can observe the origins of the universe and the formation of stars and planets. Given the way that you know, millions of miles of light traveling to us, we can see in the past almost. But last week, Webb Telescope news was either a huge benefit or a huge bummer depending on how you look at it. As they were looking at the, uh, what they call the nearby Orion Nebula, not exactly nearby uh, in other terms, but the Orion Nebula, they discovered dozens of pairs of never-before-seen celestial bodies, free-floating, Jupiter-sized objects unexplained by current theories of planet formation. This discovery has done nothing less than completely blow up their current theories of how stars and planets were formed. As one astrophysicist put it, these objects should not exist. No, they shouldn't. Not if your widely held theories and frameworks are correct. Oh no, they're not. (laughs) And I'll be honest, I love when stuff like this happens to other people. Not to me. (laughs) Yet this is actually the universal human predicament, isn't it? We get interrupted. Paradigms shift right out from under us. It's a longer journey than we anticipate, and we have not arrived. We have not arrived. We have not fully grasped, not even close, what Christ has done for us, nor have we been able to even comprehend or or even come close to attaining what it fully means for us but we're trying to hold on to it. Paul traded career and credibility to find himself in a Roman jail cell with Jesus. And this was not the plan, not even close. But he says, rejoice in the Lord and imitate me. He's saying, let's press on. Let's strain forward even when it's clear that we are far from arriving. I have not attained it, he says. He says in verse 12 that this transformation of his own life, this real union with Jesus, and this new righteousness that he could not have imagined, all of that attainment and all of that reality, it just isn't complete in him. He hasn't attained it. He hasn't obtained what he's pursuing, not yet. The losses and the setbacks in his life are real. They're clear but he's still learning to locate them, 
to identify them, to see them in the light of his union with Jesus. And he says, sharing in his suffering. Sharing in his suffering. Which he says just before this, our reading today in verse 10. And he says, so I press on toward the goal in verse 14. He's purposefully putting behind him not only the things that haven't gone well or aren't going well, to say the least, but also he's putting behind him his past achievements and values, his old sources of confidence to which anyone, all of us, would be tempted to return. And there he is. He's in what, if not at the time, would soon be a frigid prison cell that will have this aging man asking his disciple Timothy to please bring me the cloak that I left at Troas. I'm either cold or going to get cold. It's that human. It's that experiential. It's that real. But he's nonetheless determined to fix his eyes on the prize, he says, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But we don't need to mistake what he means here. The upward call is not some escape to heaven or to some heavenly just mindset, reflection on some one day far away reality. But This upward call is the way in which, through him, even in prison, this heavenly reality shapes his earthly purpose and his urgency and his calling right there in what we often call the messy middle. This is the source of his urgency, of his devotion, and yes, it can be the source of his joy. He has this upward call in Christ It hasn't changed, even though the circumstances have. Verses 15 and 16, they lay things pretty bare. He says, this approach, this way of thinking, of understanding, it is what maturity looks like. It's what we're seeking to attain at the very least. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you think otherwise, God will update your thinking. In other words, he's not going to change. We'll have to if we're going to make sense of it. In other words, you've come a long way. The truth is what got you here. It hasn't changed. Even if things look or feel different, hold true to what we have attained. Don't let the circumstances create spiritual amnesia because that's exactly what they can do. We live with it. It's one of our greatest challenges. So verse 17 is an encouragement to guard their associations and relationships particularly those who influence their direction and mindset. Paul knows well before us that, you know, it is, begins and ends with people and relationships and our experiences through them. And, and he says here in verse 17, he, he's often in tears about those who presumably here have walked away from the truth. And now they've become enemies of the faith and now they're pulling on the rope in this tug of war, so to speak. And he knows that this struggle for us If not always, at least most of the time, it begins with people, with relationships and associations and influences. He knows how vulnerable we are to the example, you know, of those who we often see who flaunt a kind of temporary reprieve uh, in returning to their old ways of life. It was too hard following Jesus. And so now I've found maybe a a middle way. Paul's point is the Philippians and we with them really have a choice as to who will ultimately shape our self-understanding and our perceptions, the way we live our lives, our perception of the world around us. 
it's sort of a vacuum that's always being filled. And so, even before in this letter, he said, watch out for those influences. And I don't have to tell you, I mean, why is, it, why is this so important? I don't have to tell you that truth is a contested thing. And very rarely is it just, okay, do I want to believe this thing or that thing and I'm going to test this and think this? More often than not, if not always, it has to do with who believes it and their influence upon us. Truth is a contested thing. Lots of things look and sound truthy, as they say. Especially the things that appeal to, in Paul's word, the belly. Or, in other words, our, our urges, our impulses, the things that come naturally to us. It's just hard to argue with desire, isn't it? Hard for me to. Especially when someone else parades their life of tempor- uh, temporal gratification as a so-called freedom. And that's very often how we think of it. Oh, well, that's freedom, and me, I'm living this life trying to, trying to follow Jesus. It's too hard. It's hard. Man, they're having a great time. And he's speaking of these things, especially people who've turned away from the truth. So for Paul, the truth and the urgency, it cannot be found. It cannot be found in the powerful dictates of the immediate. You're going to have to look further, look longer. They're found in the long view, the view that we were made not only for time, certainly not for our bellies, we are made for eternity and for our own influence toward things that last and things that matter. In our modern era, you know, it's just true. There are a growing number, even among the church, who treat the Christian faith like something to continually interrogate under the influence of modern sensibilities. The modern belly, so to speak. It makes me think of uh, Dr. Cuticle. You guys know who Dr. Cuticle was? In the Herman Melville novel, uh, White Jacket. You probably didn't read it because Moby Dick came right after that, and that's the one your teachers told you that you should read, and they weren't wrong. White jacket. And so on board the USS Neversink, the ship's doctor rarely has more than blisters to deal with. So one day he gets pretty excited because there's a sailor with severe abdominal pain, and he is diagnosed with appendicitis, and then Dr. Cuticle, he's eager to open him up and remove the infected organ. And he has this chance to show off his expertise and his knowledge to all these sailors who, want to, who are standing around because they've never seen inside of an abdomen. So he gets to be the expert. And so he excitedly points out all the interesting anatomical details of the inside of a human being. He points all these out excitedly and the enthusiastic doctor who's now sewing up his patient, is the last to realize that his patient has been long dead on the table. And so it is with the Word of God. For all the benefits of our endless resources that we have, and our historical critical approach to the gospel, which does help us in so many ways make better sense of context and culture and genre and all of these things, the pendulum has swung so far and it's so shaped our society that the word of life to which Paul tells them, er, the Philippians earlier, to hold fast, it's now ham-handedly dissected under a sterile and suspicious light. As if we know better. As if we can see that far into space. No wonder so many quarters of the church in America are dying. The scriptures have been long dead on the table serving the ends of humanistic so-called expertise. 
So this is what comes our way. These are the dangers. These are the realities. This is what Paul is in tears about. But we need to come full circle in the chapter. Paul's call to rejoice is not just some sentimental positivity or idealism. What's he doing? He's telling them and us, you must choose to orient your body and your mind to what you've come to believe is true and inevitable, even when it doesn't feel like it used to. When the race is long, when you know and feel that you have not arrived, because none of us have, Paul says, not even me. And when discouragement that will inevitably come pulls hard on you, he's saying, pull back. Pull back in the other direction. In a sense, this is the point of everything we do together as a church. We're retelling the history and we are recalling uh, and proclaiming the destiny of a world that's being redeemed from evil and death and lies and destruction. A world that we can't fix by ourselves. As hard as we try, as wide as we might smile. We are witnessing to that history, we're witnessing to that destiny in the way we orient our bodies and our minds, the way we approach our relationships and our politics, the way we spend our time and our money, the way we view the comings and the goings of societal confusion. And this is what Paul means in verse 20 when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. That's how we get on with it. How we press on with it. We strain forward. He clearly doesn't mean here that we're just supposed to grit our teeth and wait for a one day, again, far away heaven as our destiny. He means that we are already indelibly connected to and identified by our relationship to Jesus. The king who is already enthroned. We belong to the kingdom of heaven as it spreads through us to the kingdoms of men in our tiny little temporal circles, in our society, in our neighborhood, in our workspace, in our families. You know, um, Hannah mentioned this last week, the Philippians, you know, many of them, they had a very proud Roman military background. They are citizens of the empire. And somewhat shockingly, uh, so is Paul. He's a Roman citizen. But that's not ultimate. Certainly Caesar is not Lord. It's not fundamental to true identity. It's not the path or the destination. It's not security. It can't be, even if it promises to buffer us from the losses or to shorten this terribly long journey. A few years back, I was introduced to this, the the idea that the health of any given church, let's just talk about us for a minute, the health of any given church at any given time could probably be understood or explained in terms of levels of urgency about who we are, what we're doing, and anxiety about who we are and what we're doing. How much of each of these are actually present in the congregation at any time? Urgency and anxiety. Let me unpack it a little bit. When there are difficulties, and we know this, when there are conflicts, when there are losses, anxiety inevitably increases, right? We all know that. Many of us have been a part of, of and experienced this in church. Things just start to go really south because of the level of anxiety, because of stuff that's happening. We also know that changes in a church have a way of producing anxiety. It's understandable. Uh, one of my mentors used to say, you know, it's, people aren't really afraid of 
of change, they're afraid of loss. But that's what change so often brings. Loss. Even when it brings benefits, it brings some loss. So that's anxiety, but on the other hand, when good stuff is happening, when you know, problems are being solved, when there, is a clear sort of, there are clear opportunities and fruitful outcomes, urgency increases. And what can it do? It can crowd out the anxiety that we feel, regardless of what's going on. It can keep our motivation high. Well, another way of thinking of urgency is actually purposeful motivation that we feel. And really, this is true in, I think this is true in everything. It happens in businesses. Think about it. It happens in your family. The amount of urgency combating the amount of anxiety. What's going on? As many of you know, I work with, uh, as a canon for church planting our diocese, I work with church planters, 10 of them right now. And the early going of a church plant, which we were, is always pretty high in urgency. It's super scary. But it's high in urgency, in purposeful motivation, right? I mean, a, there's a tangible sense of calling. People are excited. The goal is clear. There's energy. There's even idealism. Every new person that you add to the fledgling little flock is exciting for everyone. It makes everybody's Sunday. And it makes the next Sunday if they happen to come back, too. But it doesn't take long for something to stir up anxiety. The enthusiastic people who jumped in initially... They've already invited all their friends, and not many of them stayed. You've been setting up chairs in a gym for a year and a half or so, maybe two, and you haven't seen a new family in three months. Anxiety goes up. Urgency goes down. There's a family that gets kind of burnt out, and they say, we just need a real church in this season. Oh, yeah, I heard that. And the plant is left to figure out how to move forward through the discouragement. How do you get the urgency back? Is it even possible? Can you? But here's the thing, and I think this is what Paul is on about. For a church that's struggling, urgency doesn't primarily depend on things always going right. It just doesn't. It can't. It depends on getting our hearts and our minds right. And that actually does include embracing the hardships. It's hard. It includes embracing the changes, embracing the challenges as an actual part of what it means to be a community of purposeful motivation. As Paul emphasized in chapter 2, when our minds align with a Jesus who emptied himself for love, and when we put his example at the center of our personal and collective imaginations, even the hardships look different to us. They do. They feel, as they're meant to, like a meaningful connection to Jesus and to one another. So as Paul says, he feels one with Jesus in his suffering, in the difficulty, in the uncertainty. It draws him closer. And this is really what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. This fledgling church is in danger of their urgency giving away or giving way to anxiety because people aren't getting along. They're understandably discouraged by the losses. They're confused about their allegiances. One thing feeds the other, but Paul reminds them to join him in keeping their eyes on Jesus and on the prize because it's a long journey. It's a long obedience the distractions are many, the setbacks are real, and he is living in one. 
And he says our bodies too are unruly. It'd be a lot easier if that wasn't true, wouldn't it? But this is where he leaves it, at least in our reading today. And I want to leave you with this. He says, but Jesus will indeed transform these lowly bodies. Like the one he had, by the way. To be like the glorious body that he has now, by the way. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Go back to the beginning of our reading. All things. Rubbish. Now all things will be subjected to Jesus. He's saying together, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Press on, trusting that Jesus will in due time. He will bring the life and the rule of heaven to bear on the world. And that starts with us. Right here, together, trusting, pressing on, straining on, believing in what Jesus promised, even as we wait. Lord, help us to wait, help us to trust. Lord, we do pray that despite difficulty, changes, losses, whatever we're experiencing personally as a church, that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, that you would help us to rejoice in you. It's a choice hard but help us to rejoice in you give us the strength to do that lord the wisdom to do that help us to do that for one another in the name of the father son and holy spirit amen